The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where you'll listen because you don't want to believe, you'll listen because you want to know. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for tuning in once again. This is episode number 25. Tonight is a very special night. Tonight we celebrate a milestone, our six-month anniversary. I'm sure you'd agree that the last six months have been a great ride for Veritas. We started from nothing, and so far we have interviewed the best of the best, and our future guests will continue the trend. And there is no one who could honor this exopolitics show than the father of exopolitics himself. Tonight's special guest, Alfred Weber. Alfred will be with us shortly. The Veritas show is syndicated by the following affiliates. K-Rock's Zero Point Radio, the Black Vault Radio Network, and the Paranormal Radio Network, UPRN 105.8 FM, New Orleans. You can listen to Veritas right on our website or iTunes on RSS feeds throughout cyberspace. And if you listen through iTunes, please remember to rate us and leave feedback. We are heard in 122 countries. Our upcoming guests are Wheatley Streber, Yvonne Smith, Stephen Bassett, Colleen Andrews, Timothy Good, yes, he's back now, and many more. 
For updates, visit our website, veritasshow.com. If you need to get in touch with me and send your comments and or to submit questions to our future guests, send an email to mail at veritasshow.com or head on to our website and click on the contact button. I want to welcome and thank our new subscribers, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. And remember to stop by the forum, The Manticore, which is another member benefit. And here's a preview of part one and two of Chosen, the abduction special, with abduction hypnotherapist Yvonne Smith, and abductee and author Whitley Strieber. Uh, they both described four strange beings. Three were very small, and one was very tall. The tall one took John to one area of the craft, while the three small beings took Jesse to another area of the craft. So they separated the brothers. And the brothers in hypnosis both said the exact same, describing them almost exactly. They've both been implanted. Uh, John still has an implant right under his left ear. Uh, he does not want it removed, says he told me that was part of the, that he would keep that in and they would give him injection. His, when he, and I asked him that, I go, what agreement, and the agreement with the that um, if, if he did not remove the object, that uh, he would get in for, and that's how I believe he's getting in for, that's how he's getting this in about all of the inventions that he's, because he said, you know, he goes, um, you know, I'm a high school graduate. He goes, I don't have a college degree, I'm not a scientist, uh, but he's coming up with, uh, he, has, he had about uh, patents that were pending, and uh, and one of them was very interesting because our government was very interested in the that he was waiting for a patent about, and they, they almost uh, imposed a order of secrecy on this invention. So, people who have been abducted, they have their sperm and overtake and manipulated. Women are implanted with um, with embryos, um, and they they go through a pregnancy, a very strange pregnancy, and uh, they feel even when they have regular human babies that their babies are and they has been manipulated and some of these children are, that are being born recently are highly highly intelligent but we're talking about the hybrids which are you know half half aliens that are um are being produced and most likely they're being becoming more and more perfected to live among us truman's decision was a fatal catastrophe for mankind and the fact that that decision, as recently as the Stephenville incident, which was staged by the visitors, that's why they went so close, they went just close enough to George Bush's ranch to rile up the Air Force, but not so close as to violate the rules and compel them to fire. And what did they do? They went up with fully armed jets and then lied about it. The visitors saw all of that. They saw the decision to go up with fully armed jets, they watched the lying that was done by the Air Force. I have done something to make certain sure that certain of this material will get out after I die. But uh, if I'm murdered, maybe uh, I'll be, um, maybe it'll get out in a different way than they would have hoped. That I'm, there's going to be an outpouring of this unspoken information from me. Uh, I have a lot, a lot to talk about that I haven't talked about because it, it was so hopeless. In May of 1989, I received an implant in my left ear. This implant was placed in my left ear by people, by a man and a woman. I saw them come into the room. Then as I woke up, I heard a male voice outside say, condition red. Then I, as I opened my eyes, I started to go for the lights 
I had a big bank of light switches that could turn on these searchlights all over the house, floodlights. Started to go for those lights. As I went that way, I saw a woman standing near the foot of the bed and a man with a big beard behind her. I was lying on my right side and there was pressure on my head in waves on the side of my left side of my head and the woman's voice was speaking in a soothing manner. Yes, they are here and not only are they flying around the skies, you'll have them pop up in your bedroom and there isn't one thing that we can do about it and if you see them walking out of the house with your children in their arms, you're just going to have to let it go because we can't help you. Tonight, I'm not going to read any headlines. For that, you can go to our blog. For those of you who have listened from the beginning, this will be a nice way to remember how we started. And to you, new listener, here's a surprise so that you know how we started. Enjoy. And now, in celebration of the Veritas Show six-month anniversary, in this and the next few shows, I'm going to include the best clips from past interviews so that some of you, new listeners, can have an idea of the great guests we've had so far. It wouldn't be fair if the first clip wasn't that of Milton Torres, our very first guest, an Air Force fighter pilot who for over 50 years held a very important secret. And it wasn't until November 2008 when the British Minister of Defense released his story to the world. And here are the best moments from that interview. And they told me, uh, we're going to advise you now so that you can prepare, select 24 rockets. This will be a fire, an active fire mission. This is not a practice. This is not a drill. This is the real thing. Uh, at that point, of course, uh, my adrenaline was up, up as high as it can go. And from that point on, it was nothing but hands over feet. You know, it was just... Well, we continued climbing, and we continued climbing to 32,000 feet. Uh, prior to that time, we had several discussions about what this was. Uh, this was an unknown, and it was uh, acting very weird, uh, but we were going 32,000, I was climbing at 0.92 Mach, which is as fast as this thing can go. When, I, when we settled out, I, I immediately picked up the target. The target was a blip, the biggest blip I've ever seen. It looked like it was an aircraft carrier in the North Sea. It was that big. And uh, I just kept, com kept coming in and I, I attempted a lock-on and immediately it locked on because it hit 15 miles. That's our lock-on point. And it locked on immediately. It was such a strong target that the radar just couldn't be busted. It just locked on. Anyway, I continued the, the mission, and I was uh, coming in, and uh, I, I called Judy. Judy means uh, no, I don't need any more information. I've got the target. It's locked on, and the radar is taking, taking over. At that point, I also heard, uh, about maybe a few seconds later, uh, Judy from my wingman. He, so he also was locked on. He was behind me about a mile or so, but off to the right. So. Uh, at that time, I also pulled my, my trigger. The overtake was beyond minus 200 now. It was just, you know, it was so, so incredible. It had to be going close to Mach 10. 
And the next thing I know, he was gone. I mean, gone off the radar screen completely. And of course, in this case, it didn't fire because the radar decided I was out of range. He, well, what happened was he was so far ahead of me that he, it would have never hit him. He would have been fired into nothing. So uh, I reported this to the ground. The ground radar indicated they were off his scope. His scope was 250 miles, which means in, in the center that was somewhere near London. And uh, that means he was off, off, not only off the scope, he was out of England. He was gone. And uh, that's how fast he was going. So, uh, of course, we, we canceled the mission and had to go back and land. That was the end of the mission. Meanwhile, they, war they told me to call on the landline when I get on the ground. I did. And they told me not to discuss this with anyone and that somebody would be down from London uh, at the embassy. And it was probably one, one of our national security people. I don't know who it was. I know the, the gentleman came in. He had a dark, uh, looked like a Navy uh, trench coat. Now, and before we get to that part, just yeah. before you were scrambled, radar personnel were tracking this object for a while, right? Yes, yes. N not only were you given the order to scramble, but you were given the order to use your full salvo of 24 rockets. Uh, immediately, immediately. Immediately. Yes. In all your years as a fighter pilot, has that ever happened? Never, never had that happen, ever. That, that's uh, the rarest order I've ever received. So, what happened after you returned to base? Oh, well, I picked up the landline and, and I talked to who, uh, the GCI controller on the other end of the line in, in Met Sector. And uh, he said that he's instructed to tell me not to discuss this mission with anyone and that somebody would be down from London to debrief me the next day. So anyway, sure enough, the next day, uh, here comes this, this, this guy with the Navy trench coat. He introduces himself and it shows me his documentation, which was basically something official that looked like it was from Washington somewhere. But, you know, I, I, I don't know specifically. I was so pumped up that I didn't know what the hell to tell you. So anyway, I, I talked to the man and, and debriefed him and told him exactly what happened, which is basically what I've just told you. And uh, he said, now, he says, I want you to understand this clearly. He says, you are not to discuss this with anyone. This means your wife, your friends, your fighter pilot friends, your commander, or anyone else. So this is this is your last discussion about this mission. I said I understand. And he says uh, if you if you violate this and, and say it's anything, we will remove you from flying status. And I know what that meant. That that meant I would not be flying anymore. As far as I'm concerned, it was a forgotten item. You know, it was scared me very much because I was just a lieutenant at the time, and this meant the end of my career. And I, I sure wasn't going to say a word because I, they they were dead serious when they tell you they were, they were going to ground you. When they say they were going to ground you, that's exactly what they do: ground you. I I know that this this spacecraft that was out there was not of this Earth. It had to be some kind of an alien spacecraft because. It violated all the uh, all we know about momentum and g-forces and what have you. Mind you, I'm an engineer and I know exactly what what I'm talking about now. It, it, it is something that they had a propulsion system that was probably anti-gravity or something magnetic or something that way beyond anything we had. It was not a, a normal uh, system. 
And the, the way he turned, he, tur he turned rather quickly when he turned, and he, it was almost like going, turning in right angles. He, when he was gone, he was gone, and there was no way of ever catching him. As far as closing my mouth, I knew exactly what I had to do. It was to close my mouth. I couldn't say anything to anybody. And I wanted to talk to everybody, but I, I just couldn't do it. I, I couldn't take that change. I was afraid to talk to anybody. I was scared. The key to a democratically elected government is transparency, and keeping this huge secret is anything but that. To all those closed-minded skeptics out there who believe we are alone and that creatures on Earth are the only ones in the universe, what do you say to them? I say, hey, wake up. We're not. There's nothing out there that indicates that we are alone. Everything indicates that we're not alone. You should be skeptical about everything that looks like some kind of a gimmick, but uh, don't close your mind completely, uh, because anything and everything is possible. And to Dr. Milton Torres, thank you for your service to our country and for being responsible for launching the very test show out of nowhere. Our interview was supposed to be a recorded telephone call that I wanted to keep for my own records. I decided to post it on a few websites and share it with others. And at the time, we didn't even have a website, and the Veritas name was something I came up with hours before the interview in the hopes that Milton Torres would accept. I had no idea this telephone call was going to turn into a real international show. So many people contacted me believing it was a real show that they wanted to hear more. I contacted Stephen Bassett, who requested Milton Torres' telephone number and I took the opportunity to ask him for an interview, and he graciously accepted. The genie was out of the bottle. Who would have thought that Stephen Bassett would be asking me to interview him again just a few months later? I kept this secret until now so that the future guests did not find out I was simply an average person without any expertise, but with an overly developed sense of wonder. Well, as promised, I am now telling you how this show really started. There are other very interesting stories leading to this, which include years and decades of my life, and I will share them with you in the near future. This is just the beginning of my own version of Fairy Test Disclosure. And to those of you who have been with me from the beginning, I thank you. And to those who are just tuning in for the first time, welcome. Make yourself at home. And now, get ready to spend a night with an attorney, professor, author, futurist and father of exopolitics, Alfred Weber, an overall illustrious man. Veritas is an exopolitics show and our guest roster would not be complete without Alfred Weber. If you want to know the latest on exopolitics, life on Mars, yes, existing civilized life on Mars, and the campaign that's coming to push our government to release this information to the public, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.
This is Whitley Strieber, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Alfred Labramont Weber is an author, futurist, lawyer, peace advocate, environmental activist, space activist, and radio talk show host. Alfred is a former Fulbright scholar, a graduate of Yale University Law School, and of the University of Texas Counseling Program. He has taught economics at Yale University and civil liberties at the University of Texas. He was general counsel to the New York City Environmental Protection Administration, an environmental consultant to the Ford Foundation. Alfred has worked for years to prevent the weaponization of space. He is the international director of the Institute for Cooperation in Space, ICIS, dedicated to transforming the permanent war economy into a peaceful, sustainable space-age society, preventing the weaponization of space and supporting cooperation among life in the universe. He has been a delegate to the Unispace Outer Space Conference, an NGO representative at the United Nations. With others, he is a co-architect of the Space Preservation Act and the Space Preservation Treaty, introduced to the United States Congress by Congressman Dennis Kucinich to ban space-based weapons. Alfred is the author of the book Exopolitics, Politics, Government, and Law in the Universe. And we are honored to have with us attorney, professor, author, futurist, and father of exopolitics, Alfred Labramont Weber. Hello, Mr. Weber, and welcome to The Veritas Show. How are you? Uh, Mel, you know, I am so happy to be on on this show. And um, I guess part of the show, we were sharing some of our mutual heritage in that my mother's family is from Cuba, and I grew up in Cuba, and I think that one or more of your parents is, is, from, is from Cuba also. My, both of my parents were born and raised in Cuba, and because of yeah. the Cuban Missile Crisis, they got out to Spain, and now I'm talking to you. <laughs> Otherwise, this probably is, I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, this is such a small world. I mean, and utterly intertwined. And I guess that, 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 that's, that that's the essential message of exopolitics, that the world or, or kind of the playing field that human history is accustomed to play on is suddenly expanding. And, and we can begin not only to document that, but to interface with the larger play, playing field, which can be the solar system, the galaxy, the multiverse, and all of it is inhabited. It's a complete, complete flip from the scientific canon of the 20th century, which is that all intelligent life ended at Earth's geostationary orbit. I've been listening to you for so long that I feel it's just reconnecting with a friend. May I respectfully okay. refer to you as Alfred? Yes, please, please. You know, I, I, I'm actually, I'm from a long line of Alfreds. My grandfather was Alfred, whoever my father was, I am, and my son is. So, you know, here we are with that, with that name moving forward. Well, Alfred, it, uh, first of all, let me say that exopolitics was the first word that came to my mind when I created uh, this show, Veritas. So in a way... I have a debt of gratitude to you, and because of your efforts, in large part, that's why Veritas was launched, 
By the way, today we reach a very special milestone, our six-month anniversary. At the most, it may not seem that long, but for a new show, it's a pinnacle. And I'm glad it is you who's here with us to celebrate that tonight. There are people in 122 countries listening, and I hope we can continue making a difference. Well, you know, I, I, I get kind of goosebumps here, and what I'd like to do is, is kind of add to the six months, and that is I'm holding a copy. This is fresh off the press in, in uh, Spain. Uh, La Ediciones Desica Pisis Exopolitica, La Política, El Gobierno y la Ley en el Universo, por Alfred Lemeron Weber. And I'm just going to read the first short paragraph. Introducción. Ya han transcurrido 10 años desde que en 1999 se escribió el libro Exopolítica en Vancouver, Canadá. Exopolítica fue publicado por primera vez vía Internet en el año 2000 para sembrar un nuevo paradigma de la realidad humana. And basically what, what, what we're saying there is that we have now, we are now celebrating the 10th anniversary since in 1999 the book Exopolitics was written in Vancouver, Canada. Exopolitics was first published on the Internet in the year 2000 to uh, plant a new paradigm of human, of human reality. So we're both celebrating anniversaries, and, and this is the, the 10th anniversary of the writing of the book Exopolitics, which has introduced a whole new paradigm and kind of interface between our human civilization and other intelligent civilizations in the multiverse. I say multiverse because one is used to saying extraterrestrial civilizations, you know, the, those guys on those planets over there, but there's a saying you can't get, you can't get there from here. And, and I think that that's true in the multiverse uh, in which we have parallel dimensions and parallel universes. And in fact, when people talk about extraterrestrials, they're really talking about hyperdimensional societies from parallel universes. And that's something I think that is um, uh, uh, a very um, uh, important distinction to start to make. The author, um, Laura Knight Jassick, author of the book High Strangeness, which I, I hope that that will that will touch upon in these in these in these couple of hours, um, uh, she says, you know, it's so important. She she writes on hyperdimensions and alien abduction, which is like the big elephant in the room of exopolitics sure. that people aren't aren't really talking about. Um, uh, uh, the latest estimates in that field, just to kind of front load the discussion is that one billion human beings out of our six billion human beings on the planet at this time have been abducted by a specific hyperdimensional civilization. That is the burning exopolitical issue, and yet uh, it is ignored by the media that can't handle it. It's kept out of discussions at all the exopolitical conferences and relegated just to a few networks of very courageous researchers. So I think that the word hyperdimensional 
when we refer to extraterrestrial, hyperdimensional extraterrestrials, is very important so that people conceptually begin to understand that, hey, these are beings, if we're in the third density, they're in the fourth or the sixth, um, that is upper dimensional beings uh, beyond our in, in, uh, in domains of existence that um, have a very different function of time, for example, and, and, a, and a very different view of what reality is like. We're, we're sort of transiting toward the fourth or the fifth. Alfred, I want to take a baby steps to those who have never heard the word exopolitics. Believe, believe it or not, there are some out there that are now getting acquainted. And by the way, congratulations on the tenth anniversary of your tenth year anniversary of your book. Why did it take so long for it to be translated into another language? I know exopolitics, the word, it's catching up in Europe. I get people from exopolitics, Poland, Germany, Spain, write to me all the time. I was in a show in Spain a few months ago. It seems that the word exopolitics is becoming what Carl Sagan exobiology term used to be also. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a word. Actually, we were nominated for, exopolitics was nominated for word of the year in 2005. And what exopolitics is, and the exact definition is, you'll find alternative definitions depending on what the focus of, of the particular usages, it's like the term physics, i.e., it's a generic term. And what exopolitics is, is the new political science of outer space. It's uh, the, the sort of definition that, that my work and uh, other people who focus on the hyperdimensional aspects of exopolitics is as follows, that exopolitics is the science of relations between our human civilization and other intelligent civilizations in the multiverse. And, and that's sort of the, the, a, a very encompassing definition that sets to, to map out what our re- re- relationship on Earth in this third or you know, dimension of time-space is to a vast multiverse of parallel universes in which many other different uh, intelligent civilizations exist. There are some definitions of exopolitics which limit themselves to terrestrial political activity in the political context of the disclosure of the extraterrestrial presence. That's sort of looking at exopolitics from a terrestrial standpoint. So uh, both have their have their functions. It's kind of like the yin yang, the, the the two halves of 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 a whole. But um, you're you're quite right. Um, the the awareness uh, uh, and the use of exopolitics now is on an exponential curve as we begin to be a new discipline in human knowledge. Let's talk about what happened before exopolitics. Can you take a moment to share with our audience a little about your early years, your childhood, your time at Yale, and any experiences that shaped you into the exopolitics figure you are today? Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, uh, I would start that by saying that 
perhaps one of my earliest experiences or f- formative experiences. This is was in 1954, 1952, in, in, in the early 50s, in my grandmother's house in, in Havana, Cuba. And there was a, a very popular um, band at that time called Orquesta Aragón. And, and uh, they had a popular song which was at the top of the charts. And I was a very kind of a young child at that time. And I would play it, and it would be playing the radio, and I remember dancing to it. And it's called Los Marcianos Llegaron Ya. Of course. Llegaron Bailando Cha Cha Cha. Cha Cha Cha, sure. Which, which translates that the Martians have landed, and they landed dancing Cha Cha Cha. Now, that's a very prescient song because now, from what we know, and this is a, just a breaking scientific discovery, which I hope we can touch on more in detail. We actually sure. now have, thanks to the NASA rover Spirit photographs, we can extract, and this is through the work of my colleague, Andrew Bashago, um, uh, uh, and um, we now have in the NASA rover photographs um, uh, photographs of various classes of humanoids, classes of animals, sculptures, structures, and the analysis of the Martian psychology, judging from these photographs, and also judging from the remote viewing evidence, which is in the last part of my book, Exopolitics. My book, Exopolitics, uh, Exopolitics itself was constructed around a case study of an intelligent, apparent intelligent civilization living under the surface of Mars, uh, using the then uh, evidence of... Um, replicable replicable remote viewing and the Martian psychology and people by by the way can go to the website exopolitics.com and download a free 41 page PDF paper the discovery of life on Mars and it discusses more in detail um, is that the Martians are highly creative and very playful so if the Martians, you know, now that the Martians are landing, indeed, they are dancing cha-cha-cha, i.e. they are trying to dance humanity out of its, um, out of its narcissistic and self-destructive permanent war economy on which, you know, 150 wars are going on at any one time. And let me interject, a few months ago, I listen to your show all the time, but a few months ago I was listening to your show, and I listened to the show with Andrew Basiago, and yeah. my jaw my jaw dropped from the first moment. I was glued. I could not believe what I was listening to. I even emailed you immediately the moment it ended. I emailed right. you and I said, Alfred, how can I get in touch with him? I have to have him on the show. Yes, yes, yes. And 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 he is an extraordinary being. We're going to be in fact when the show airs uh the very next day on june 6th and 7th we'll be making a joint presentation to the conspiracy conference at conspiracycon.com mm-hmm. in santa clara california on 
the 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 NASA cover-up of Mars and the discovery of life on Mars, which will be the first public presentation of the discovery of life on Mars. And I want to talk more about this, this the findings that Andrew has uh, has done. But going step by step with the exopolitics part, what essential points are you trying to make uh, in exopolitics, politics, government, and and law in the universe? Well, I, I think that in that book we try to, which is really, which is really a treatise. We what what we did is we we tried to give an overview of the broad principles that govern relations between our human civilization as a civilization on a life-bearing planet and, and other intelligent civilizations in the universe or in the multiverse in our various dimensions and parallel universes and how, how this may, have, may fit in uh, to law in the universe, to governance, and to politics, which is kind of a cosmic food fight. Uh, and we structured it then, just to make it concrete and real, around a case study of the civilization on Mars. And what the remote viewing evidence says, by the way, I was a futurist at Stanford Research Institute in the mid-1970s when um, Dr. Hal Putoff and Russell Targ were developing replicable scientific remote viewing uh, as then as an espionage tool, and then it was adapted in the early the later 1980s by people like Dr. Courtney Brown as a tool for establishing replicable communication according according to laboratory protocols, which is a definition of the scientific method. Therefore, it's established knowledge, uh, replicable communication with civilizations on, on other planets in, in other parallel universes, and, for example, with the governance authorities of our galaxy, the, the Galactic Federation. Um, and what, the, what, what, what we tried in the book then, just to bring it down, down to uh, our solar system reality and our earthly reality was to structure uh, a program for public interest diplomacy around the apparent intelligent civilization that lives under the surface of Mars. It's about 150 years technologically in advance of our own. In the same way that we function on kind of public advertising and war, the Martian civilization functions on secrecy. And and so that that's why we have not heard, yeah, as as a survival instrument, we put on a a map as Jimmy Carter did of, you know, this is Earth and this is where we located and this is what we're all about and here's kind of a time capsule and we send that out into the universe. Right. The Martians are the flip ops. <laughs> they live according to secrecy. Maybe they're wiser. And, and um, uh, as far as we can tell, the Earth and the Mars civilization are a single civilization. Probably, it looks like Mars was either a colony of Egypt or vice versa. When we had the great solar system catastrophe, 
of 9500 BC, in which a segment, a fragment of the uh, Vela supernova came into the solar system, uh, destroyed the Mars, uh, destroyed much of its ecology and atmosphere, and then destroyed the great maritime civilization uh, of Earth. Uh, and at that time, our two civilizations were rent asunder. And what the remote viewing evidence of communications with the Galactic Federation, and, you know, exopolitics is like any other social science. We, we use many different sources and methods to arrive at our models in the same way that an anthropologist would go to whatever tribe they're studying and sit down and kind of have meals with them and, you know, uh, get information about their belief systems, their cosmology, their their practices, uh, how they're organized. Well, in that same way, exopoliticians uh, have a very broad database of you know fifteen to twenty established sources, one of which is replicable r- remote viewing. And what the Galactic Federation said about Mars is that. Our first job in this solar system is kind of to put back together the civilizations of Earth and Mars, and that will be our first baby steps, to use the term that that you used, in extraterrestrial contact. And indeed, that contact has begun and began on December 12, 2008, uh, when the the paper, uh, The Discovery of Life on Mars, was published. Um, Andy uh, is the president and founder of MARS, the Mars Anomaly Research Society. That's a nonprofit uh, whose mission is to spearhead uh, human awareness and positive public policies toward Mars. And and I serve as I serve as the chairman of, of that organization. So what are the political implications of the book Exopolitics, Politics, Government, and Law in the Universe? Well, um, uh, I would say that that uh, uh, right now, <clears throat> the analogy that I use is that exopolitics as a paradigm is really now driving public policy of most governments on Earth, either open public policy or secret public policy, uh, toward the extraterrestrial presence. Uh, and if we look at <clears throat> if we look at the date, the timeline of the publication of Exopolitics, which first went online and was first uh, uh, made public at a scholarly conference at the University of Wyoming, uh, headed up by Professor Leo Sprinkle. I went up there and gave the first public talk on it. Uh, If we start on the year 2000, uh, with each year there's been an exponential growth in uh, human awareness of the extraterrestrial presence in an organized fashion. For example, in the year 2000, we had publication of exopolitics. Year 2001, we had the Disclosure Project. I also serve as a Disclosure Project witness mm-hmm. because uh, during the Carter administration, I was um, I I headed up a proposed 1977 
Carter White House communication study while I was a futurist at at Stanford. So in in 2001 we had the disclosure project and then uh to 2002 um, we begin to have various countries that are dis- disclosing and and as we go forward um, and on one of our powerpoints has kind of a time acceleration matrix we actually integrate the book exopolitics into the mind calendar that's the work with which author Barbara Hand Cloud did in her uh, seminal work, uh, the Mayan Code, and together with Carl Kalman have developed the the time acceleration matrix, so that the initiation on Earth of the exopolitics model in the year 2000 was very much part of the acceleration of time and integration into universe society of the planet and and um uh so i like to say that exopolitics as a meme or as kind of a social organizing uh uh thought form uh serves the same function as the famous story of the yams and the hundred monkeys and that is that one monkey on one island started washing his or her yam mm-hmm. and then suddenly you know, more monkeys started doing it, and the hundred monkeys did it, and you had critical mass, and then all monkeys on the island started washing their their yams. And in that same way, if we look at paradigm shifts, and uh, the book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, says that changes in thought, you know, like from the Earth is flat to the Earth is round, these kind of sea changes come about as a result of paradigm shifts. And we're going through that, sort of a paradigm shift in our human civilization now uh, uh, where before all intelligent life ended at Earth's geostationary orbit and the shift that we're now going through now and we're on our way to achieving critical mass or 100 monkeys uh, is that we live in a highly populated universe filled with intelligent civilizations operating under universal law and mediated by universe politics. Of course, we on Earth are just becoming aware of that now. There's a, a key, a small island out outside of the coast of Puerto Rico, uh, which is headed by the University of Columbia in New York, I believe, and they have thousands of monkeys there. It's, it's a lab, if you will. Well, a few years ago, there weren't any monkeys in Puerto Rico. Now there are thousands. Years ago, one of the monkeys realized that, of course, monkeys cannot swim because they don't have any fat. So that monkey grabbed a piece of wood, floated to the island, and now the rest followed. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's i.e., the monkey's paradigm changed. And, and in that same way, we're now undergoing a paradigm shift which is fueled by the exopolitical insight, and that is that we live in a populated, organized universe. So it's very difficult to ignore, Alfred, uh, claims coming from someone as accomplished as you are. How do your credentials and background bolster the disclosure process? Well, you know, I, I, I don't think of myself 
extraordinarily special. I'm 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 really a person with kind of that who grew up with that sort of fast track um, fast track education. Mm-hmm. At, you know, I I went to prep school, uh, uh, boarding school. I I I went to Yale undergraduate. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, was a, a Yale Law School National Scholar uh, at at Yale Law School. Uh, um, uh, a few years before Bill and Hillary Clinton, <laughs> I think five 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 years or so. And um, while I was at, at at Yale, I also at Yale Law School I also taught in the economics department at Yale. And while going full-time at Yale Law School, I actually had one of the heaviest class loads in the economics department. I thought I taught uh, four two-hour sections a week, which is a lot for a a teacher. Uh, So I've always been accustomed to kind of multitask and to do it in in a very accelerated way and what happened to me, just to fast forward through part of my life, I started out as at one of the leading international um, law firms. Um, I, I, w- I actually sat in the office. My, my, my office was the office of one of the partners, the former partners of the firm, George Ball, who was Undersecretary of State under John F. Kennedy. And... And uh, from there, I went to the Environmental Protection Administration, was general counsel of the Environmental Protection Administration in New York City, right at the beginning of the environmental movement. Well, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, this is December 1972, and I begin to read certain books like The Morning of the Magician, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain, and I realized that this so-called blue-chip education has left out major pieces that you know of consciousness uh that the whole issue of the uh proceeding of consciousness prior to birth and and the survival of consciousness after death is subject to the study of parapsychology in a very scientific way and uh so i became interested in that and uh located began collaborating with a professor of experimental psychology at Rutgers University. Um, John Lindsay, who was the mayor of New York, decided he wanted to run for president. I really didn't didn't want to go that way. So at the beginning of 1973, I just jumped into the Alice in Wonderland hole of parascience and extraterrestrials. And by by June of that year, had uh, published, my publisher was G.P. Putnam's and Berkeley Paperbacks published in the United States, Canada, J- Japan, uh, a book called The Age of Cataclysm, which is the first book to integrate the modern earth sciences, geology and seismology, with uh, psi phenomena and the great prophecies, you know, of Edgar Cayce, the, the, the prophecies in all of the sacred texts as to earth changes. Uh, and uh, part of it, I um, completed in in that book uh, was uh, the the, the uh, theory of 
extraterrestrial context context communication. And and what that is is that one can look at, for example, the UFO phenomena in the same way that we look at at a dream, and that is these are other or higher intelligent sources communicating symbolically to humans in the same way that our subconscious in a dream communicates symbolically to our conscious mind. And we use dream dictionaries to interpret that. So I approached uh, the whole UFO phenomenon coming from a, a Jungian view, which is that Carl Jung said in his very seminal work, Flying Saucers, that UFOs were, quote, mandalas, and those are devices for spiritual elevation. And in that same way, we, uh, we can begin to parse out UFO encounters from the extraterrestrial context communication point of view. For example, the Godman Air Force uh, base incident where a, a flyer named Mantell was killed right by trying to chase a ufo well, it's god man air force base in other words there's a whole context of these and one can systematically uh uh analyze the ufo phenomena my kind of favorite one in the modern era is the uh, chicago o'hare sighting of november 7 2006 in which a you know fairly large ufo 60 feet wide or so, came down upon United Airlines Gate C-17 in Chicago. I've been at that gate and uh, was witnessed by the ground crew, by by the air tower controllers, by was the, the FAA was uh, was 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 notified, uh, and it made you know all of the national media. Well, what was the significance of that? Why did they do that? Well, it was a very significant date. November 7, 2006, was midterm election day in mm-hmm. the United States, and a very important one. That's the day that the neocons lost control of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. And I remember that very well, because as a civil liberties lawyer, I was called on to analyze very frequently the police state that the U.S. was headed toward under Cheney and Bush through the military to the Military Commissions Act, and and in a way, the uh, midterm elections of 2006, November 7, 2006, uh, uh, itself uh, represented a day in which the police state was stopped in the U.S. in some significant degree. Isn't it interesting that the the sighting was in Chicago, where Obama is from. Isn't that interesting? Exactly, exactly. Exopolitics, i.e., this is how this extraterrestrial presence is interacting symbolically with another parallel civilization, i.e., our own. You mentioned Yale. Uh, Secretary of State Clinton, former President Clinton, uh, we're also uh, they attended and graduated from Yale. Also, former President George W. Bush, who graduated. I don't know how much he attended, but he graduated, right? Yeah, a- actually, Dick Cheney was in the class ahead of me at Yale. He flunked out as a sophomore, and George W. Bush was a couple of classes 
behind me. So I've been chasing these 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 characters for uh, forty years. I've heard you say that there is clandestine communication with extraterrestrials, perhaps by the powers that be. If these are more evolved civilizations that some are having contact with, why don't they circumvent and provide tangible proof that they indeed exist? As Paula Harris says, it's going to take them to show themselves in a very public location so that it can become virtually undeniable. Because if they don't, the secrecy will continue forever, don't you think? Well, yeah, that's a very good question. And there are multiple layers in that question. And I sort of like to parse out some of the layers. Not all extraterrestrial civilizations are equal. Some of them uh, are not necessarily operating in our best interests. Sure. And and they are uh, generally what we call fourth density or fourth, 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 fourth dimensional, where they have a certain mastery over time, but they've targeted Earth. And we know that both from whistleblowers uh, and from, from other evidence that uh, there has been uh, uh, there have, there have been secret human extraterrestrial liaison programs within the U.S. government, probably going back to the early 1950s. Uh, we've been working with a whistleblower who was part of a uh, such a secret human extraterrestrial liaison program in the early 1970s, and Jim Sparks. In the keepers, he's a he's a uh, a contactee of a specific category. Of oh, sure, we have it. We've had him on the show. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, Jim talks about being teleported to U.S. military bases mm-hmm. where there was ongoing liaison and cooperation between uh, these categories of extraterrestrials. So it seems like there was some sort of Faustian bargain. Uh, made, you know, and and uh, there are uh, there's many evidences of secret agreements between the U.S. government and probably on behalf of what I call the International War Crimes Racketeering Organization, kind of the international network that keeps war going on the planet as an industrial activity. Uh, that, in order to gain. Uh, um, advantage uh, from a technological point of view made agreements by which they would get certain technologies in return for the rights of these civilizations to abduct humans, uh, which uh, even the conservative uh, estimates of 2% by the Roper poll of 2002, that comes to 6.3 million Americans have been abducted under this, and the more reliable estimates by uh, organizations like ICAR, the International Community for Abduction Research, is that up to a billion humans have been abducted. So that for a few tinker toys of anti-gravity re- research and vehicles, uh, uh, the the uh, the secret power structure of the U.S. acting through you know uh, um, military. Uh, industrial projects um, uh, have uh, laid open the the earth to perhaps a very malignant or certainly not helpful uh, 
series uh, of of extraterrestrials. There are upper dimensional ethical extraterrestrials with with whom we should forge strategic alliances, and those are, for example, the extraterrestrials that reportedly met with. President Eisenhower, Eisenhower um, mm-hmm. perhaps President John F. Kennedy. Um, and so it's a complex it, it's a complex it's a complex situation. Um, there's the old adage, and this is, you know, we don't know, these stories are probably apocryphal, but that when the Spanish on the Portuguese ships first reached the islands, either in the Caribbean or in the Pacific, the the native tribes there could not recognize the ships because they were not in their paradigm, and it right. took the, it took the shamans to really uh, uh, bring the uh, the their tribes into a a realization, and so uh, you know it's not like Independence Day. I mean, upper dimensional extraterrestrial civilizations perhaps could not show themselves. If they wanted to, some researchers say that the fourth-dimensional reptilians actually have created, as kind of cyber clones, uh, certain civilizations of the greys to act as their, uh, you know, cybernetic agents in our third density uh, uh, to perform the 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 abductions. So this is a very complex. I mean, they, the, you know, you can't get there from here. You, they could not show themselves, e- even if they wanted to, and perhaps sh- showing themselves. I mean, the fourth dimensionals are working. The the sixth, the the upper dimensionals are perhaps working so that the negative fourth dimensionals will not show themselves. Well, uh, there's yeah. always. I don't mean to interrupt, but there's always a duality, good and bad. We can't expect, there's good and bad people. You can't expect that every advanced civilization will be will be good. However, the fact that they're evolved to the point where they can come here and they see this beautiful big blue marble, why wouldn't they have taken over by now? Um, yeah, yeah, you know, this is where exopolitics is such an exciting science. Because we're at a position where there is not a de- a definitive answer of that uh, of that of that of that particular question, you have researchers like uh, Laura Knight Jazik and organizations like ICAR, the International Center for Abduction Research, that are uh, especially ICAR using empirical data that is having groups of 20 to 40 to 50 abductees actually query the greys and the reptilians as to their agenda and then take those answers back so there's some uh, objective basis to it. It's not as simple as that. It's not that, that the reptilians want to take over. One theory is that they are developing a hybrid race so that they can mass incarnate into it, i.e., the process of a, of absorbing a planet is not uh, is not like what we would conceive in a Hollywood science fiction tale. 
but rather uh, we're dealing with uh, the propriety rights to the planet of the community of human souls, uh, those entities that outlive our physical bodies, versus another community of souls, all of them operating in the fourth dimension or the fifth dimension or upper dimensions. And so the issue is, is humanity going to turn reptilian, become authoritarian, and, you know, forswear all of the advances in consciousness, in, in uh, organizational and, nas- and uh, 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 human rights? And uh, uh, is humanity going to become a, a, a vehicle whereby uh, less than desirable entities would be able to incarnate into us? And we go from being a mammalian planet to a reptilian planet. Change comes from the inside. It's not that we have an external alien invasion of flying saucers in the sky, but rather... What are the souls that are being born into their, their third-dimensional spacesuits, which we call bodies? What are they like? And and uh, uh, what is the community of of what is the human community really doing? Are we becoming a planet of fascists, or are we becoming a planet of enlightened democrats? Those are questions which are being decided every day, and the outcome of this, which I'm told by the upper dimensionals is positive, <laughs> that is, ultimately, this planet will remain a planet of light. Uh, uh, the, the outcome is certainly going to be, uh, it looks like, maybe uh, we'll begin to have some answers over over uh, the next five to ten years as we complete uh, the transit through the uh, plane of the galactic center black hole in the solar maximum of solar cycle 24 in 2013, 2012, and 2013, and beyond. But uh, at this stage, the abduction research shows that, that the future... The future of our mammalian human race is not, you know, is maybe in some doubt, although there are assurances that we may perdure. Alfred, change comes from the inside. You said that. Isn't that a, an intended pun? Aren't the alleged reptilians living underground? Um, well, they, they, um, uh, the, uh, their, there are many, many different models. And so at this time, uh, for example, the model that uh, ICAR holds is that the reptilians are really amphibian reptilians and were the original uh, dwellers of this planet. And mm-hmm. then now they are trying to reach an, an accommodation uh, uh, between the the mammalians, in other words, humans, and themselves, but that we are a rather dense and backward race. You know, we, we, um, uh, there's a question as to whether we could live and coexist on the planet with a 
uh, a um, and an, a race of intelligent amphibians and rep and rep, rep reptilians. The other issue, and this is a research issue. This is why exopolitics is so exciting. Is that uh, this is where the hyperdimensional aspect of other intelligent civilizations comes in. Uh, some research says that these amphibian reptilians do not live in our time-space continuum. They live in a parallel dimension. Some call it the fourth density, in which they, they're not bound by time in the, in the same way that we, uh, who are in the third density, are bound by time. So they can go backwards and forwards in time, and in that way they've achieved some dominance over us. Uh, and, and so it's not so much as that other extraterrestrial civilizations might share our third density with us and live on this planet, but rather that that this is where the hyper-dimensional aspect of extraterrestrials take place. If we're talking about the Martians, for example, uh, the civilization living underground, and there's some on the surface of Mars, as we've seen from the NASA rover spirit photographs, that's an extraterrestrial civilization that shares our third density, that shares our third, our, our dimension of time-space, and in fact, are our, our, our genetic cousins walking around uh, in the same kind of bodies and in our in the solar system that we understand as science uh, tells it. Exopolitics seems to involve elite power groups, information, propaganda, cover-up, disclosure, etc. What is the situation concerning pro- and anti-disclosure factions? Will the non-terrestrials bypass this Earth-style politics? Well, to some extent, this is where it becomes very complex, because the entities, you may recall that in 1947 and very, very early on, there, there were... Uh, there were initial impulses to disclose all of the information and to mm-hmm. term them extraterrestrials. This very rapidly turned around to a policy, especially in the United States, embodied by the 1953, 1953 Robertson panel, in which it affects uh, discourse in civil society, either through the media, through academia, or through government, uh, uh, about extraterrestrial civilizations was, in effect, prohibited because the immediate response would be uh, to belittle uh, or to ridicule right. any, any person coming forth. Now, if we begin to examine the sources of that policy, however, it may be that those extraterrestrial civilizations who entered into secret agreements with the, uh, by and large, the U.S. government for technology transfer for abduction and other rights, they are the ones that set the secrecy. Because if human beings knew what those extraterrestrials were doing, 
I mean, we would have an uprising on this planet. And so one cannot, in a way, it may be, once the history of this era is told, that um, uh, at the innermost levels of um, uh, human, of the military-industrial complex, the secrecy was has been actually enforced by the the lower level um, uh, kind of uh, uh, less desirable and more manipulative extraterrestrials. So it's a complex situation. It's kind of like Star Wars, and and uh, you know the the uh, Jedi Knights and the Empire and. And um, uh, uh, it's multi-layered, and uh, it it may be once the story is told that these secret projects were set up and enforced as secret uh, with the participation and uh, perhaps the enforcement of the extraterrestrials themselves. Certainly, there's some research showing that the men in black phenomenon, that the men in black themselves are actually hybrid beings from the fourth density. I've heard that too. Now, have you heard about the space shuttle? Allegedly, it takes 72 hours before it docks with the International Space Station. But in actuality, the reason why it takes 72 hours, it's not for rest and relaxation, but it goes to the different space platforms or other space stations to unload cargo. Have you heard that? Well, that wouldn't surprise me. And in fact, uh, there are two space programs. One space program is the surface space program that we see of um, uh, the U.S. and other nations using right now uh, carbon-based fuels and many explosions to initially put men on the moon and then have, have the space shuttles and to put up various space, space platforms. The second and the hidden, and in fact, this is where all the black budget uh, funds go to. The, the black budget now estimated at $1.5 trillion U.S. as opposed to uh, uh, a much smaller U.S. defense budget. Um, and that is the quantum access space program with time travel, teleportation, and quantum access to other planetary systems. And in that, in that world, uh, again, uh, we have knowledge only from various whistleblowers, some of whom may be disinformers, some of whom may be more authentic. We have some testimony coming forward that there is a very direct teleportation corridor between Earth and Mars, and there are up to 600,000 U.S. soldiers and other U.S. employees on Mars at this time. And so that, that there's almost two parallel civilizations on Earth. Our service, surface civilization that's kind of, you know, limping along with these carbon-based fuels and these kind of rockets and a 
what some historians call a breakaway civilization, which is now attempting to colonize the solar system, Mars. And these, these are the real issues on Mars. That is to prevent the colonization of Mars because it is a very fragile ecology. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and we have only preliminary research in the exopolitical field, mainly from whistleblowers, some of whom have been to Mars, and say, well, what do you do there? Oh, you spend your day playing ping pong in these kind of underground, uh, uh, you know, bases. Right. Um, um, so this is why exopolitics is such an exciting field, because its vistas are unlimited. Do you believe the secret space program may be designed to prevent these entities from interacting with us? We've seen videos where we see, no doubt, spacecraft that change direction at incredible speeds in a zero-gravity environment. When a flash of light appears, obviously a hostile maneuver, perhaps by us. What are your thoughts on the secret space program then? Well, I think that that history will will show that uh, that the secret space program uh, probably started. Uh, uh, it's 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 very very complex because the Martians and this was on the front page of the, of the New York Times, January sixteenth, nineteen oh one, sent a seventy minute shaft of light to Earth that was picked up by the Harvard Observatory. And then the scientist Nikola Tesla built a Tesla machine on top of Pikes Peak and achieved interactive communication with the Martians. Uh, so that we've been having interactive science based communication and interaction on this planet with other inhabited uh, worlds, even in this solar system now, for over 100 years. A new chapter was probably written during the Third Reich, where uh, negative extraterrestrials were able to get a foothold in, working at the dimensional level with, with, with the Third Reich. Um, uh, and these quantum access programs, some of them grew out of misapplications of the Tesla technology. Some of them came over through Operation Paperclip after mm-hmm. after World War II, in which essentially the 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 Nazi uh, intelligentsia and science was transferred from um, from the uh, from Germany to the U.S., but also the connection. Uh, with the lower-level reptilian uh, hyperdimensionals. Uh, so, uh, and this may be part of a strategic uh, approach, uh, an attempt to take over what is a mammalian solar system by uh, the, 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 the reptilians, and uh, the, the the Third Reich being kind of their initial opening, and the Fourth Reich, what we call the U.S., the um, the New World Order, uh, uh, being uh, you know part of that instrumentation, so so that uh, uh, it is not accidental that in the 
early years after World War II, the U.S. was approached both by positive and negative repellings. We have uh, negative extraterrestrials. We have reports of Eisenhower meeting with with the Nordics, uh, who tried to persuade him to abandon the U.S. nuclear program mm-hmm. in February of, of, of 1954. Likewise, we know at the same time uh, that, <clears throat> and these are through these are through whistleblowers, that the U.S. was acquiring advanced quantum access technology. This is where you go someplace, not in a rocket ship but where you're teleported, and you're teleported through time, and you right. teleport from the Earth to Mars, you teleport from Mars to other planets in the solar system. Uh, and so uh, uh, it's a complex situation, and sort of the balance of light and the balance of power, and uh, uh, in our generation, whether we will succumb uh, to a future of war, crime, disease, and poverty—that—that that is, whether we will be wiped out in a in a um, planetary nuclear war or in uh, planetary pandemics, which do accompany solar maximums—is um, uh, still an open question, and it's a question that's part of this ongoing uh, technological, political, and consciousness struggle between different bases of consciousness. And speaking of the Nazis, a lot of people don't see the parallels. I'm always amazed. The Nazis lost the war, but they won the peace. And a lot of people don't remember the Reichstag fire. It was our September the 11th. In, in Germany, they had... Fatherland security, we have homeland security. They had the Patriot Act, we have the Patriot Act. It's as if somebody was trying to continue what the Nazis left behind. Right, and 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 this is by by the way, very well documented. You know, this isn't uh, this isn't conspiracy theory. This is hardcore uh, analysis of very well researched detail. Uh, that connects uh, the uh, what I like to call the International War Crimes Racketeering Organization that created World War One as an industrial right. activity. I mean, um, John D. Rockefeller made one trillion dollars in World War One dollars during World War One, and that and that was his profit, uh, and. Similarly, World War II occurred where all the major parties, the Bolsheviks, were financed by, by Skull and Bones and the Brown mm-hmm. Brother Herman's Bank. The, um, the uh, Nazis, through Fritz Tyson, were financed by George W. Bush's and Prescott Bush. Herman's, yeah, again, uh, uh, Skull and Bones, which goes back to the Brotherhood of Death, which is a, a uh, Nazi... Uh, a a kind of a black magic society founded out of the tool or, or tool organization. So so um, these are all interest groups and kind of bents of consciousness uh, which have been vying for technology, 
vying for turf, and the turf is not only here on the planet. The turf is already the solar system. I mean, if it's true that we have 600,000 troops on Mars, then that's something that should come to public consciousness so that we can begin to debate how international law protects the fragile ecology of Mars. And Alfred, we have to take uh, our first break. But before, I want to ask the question before we take the break, and then I'll let you also mention your website, your books, etc. Let me ask you this question, and then we can get your answer on the other side. We don't have to, and speaking of Tesla, we don't have to only think of a more advanced civilization that wants to help. We can think of people like Nikola Tesla, who was shut down by J.P. Morgan and others. We can think of others who built motors that run with water. And this is just a small example of the many inventors who usually die, disappear, or their patents are bought by the power structure and put away forever. How do we escape from this paradigm? And we'll get the answer on the other side. I'll let you now uh, tell us about how to get in touch with your work. Yeah, you know, um, those people, and I, and, I, and I like to mention that we just want a very important uh, legal settlement against a major international Internet pirate, I won't mention their, their name, which had been distributing a pirate edition of exopolitics, politics, government, law, and the universe. The result hmm. of that is that we were deprived of more than $30,000 of funds, which could have gone to our communication programs, our disclosure, uh, um, public interest ad- advocacy programs. So that now is passed so that we, we, we can really, you know, ask people that, that uh, they can support this effort now by uh, reading and sharing the book Exopolitics. It's very simple. You can either go to exopolitics.com uh, or you can go to amazon.com or just go to your local bookstore because Exopolitics is now carried by Baker and Taylor, which is the major international wholesaler. We also maintain a variety of other sites, and on you're on Friday nights and on Saturday nights at exopoliticsradio.org, people can tune into, uh, you know, the ongoing episodes. Absolutely. Well, Alfred, let's take a quick break. Alfred Weber, the father of exopolitics, uh, honoring us tonight here on our six-month anniversary. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.